You know, the Bible tells us that God blesses us because he loves us. But he also blesses us so that we can be a blessing. And uh, we, we try to make the greatest use of what God has continued to bring here so it goes through here to where God has for it to go. One of the things that will be happening shortly, I believe, uh, is that now that we have the foyer fixed and it's all nice and painted and, and taken care of, uh, there are about 40 flags of nations that you impact because you give here and we give out there. And so you have a global impact, whether it's shoe boxes or these nations, uh, but we also uh, look to impact locally too as the rescue mission and care net and, and different places. But it does not... As much as it's what we're supposed to do corporately, it does not relieve us of responsibility personally to impact and impart to people that God loves that we come across the path of every day. And sometimes we get intimidated or concerned, but recognize that God's with you. And these are people that are in need. I, I saw a shirt that said on the front, be kind. Be, and on the back it says, everybody is going through a battle that you know nothing about. And that is absolutely true. We're all going through a battle. And if you're going through a battle, you know, you have God with you, but there are a lot of people out there that don't have the Lord. And so we need to be sensitive to the Spirit of God when we come across people that Jesus died for and, and be willing to interrupt our schedules, our plans, to do what God has to impact that person for a moment and impart to them. It could be an internal change, amen? amen. So I just wanted to encourage you in that and know that you know we're, we're rapidly heading towards Thanksgiving and we have so much to be thankful for as Christians. There shouldn't be a day that goes by that we aren't thankful. We have only a small idea of what God has done. But one day the curtain will be pulled back and God will show us all the amazing things that he did. And he's doing them right now. And so we need to be thankful every day. Our country pauses, which is a great thing, but we should pause every day to be thankful. And sometimes people think, well, I don't, I don't know what to be thankful for. The very breath that you have to say anything is what God's given you. Be thankful for that. And he's given us so much more. Um, God, is, God has been so good and is continuing to be good. And, and even in a world that is growing more dark and desperate, he is pouring out his spirit and his life and his blessings on his people. And we need to be a light in a very dark place. Amen? Amen. So before we get to the word this morning, I, I want to ask a couple of questions. Um, has anybody... I? Sometimes I talk very fast, I know you know that. But I said this in the first service and somebody misunderstood what I said. So has anybody here been parachuting? Not parasailing, parachuting. Okay, so we're all in the same boat, we don't know anything about it, but I will tell you that when I met my wife, we were, we were dating and we were trying to find out about each other. You know, my wife is calm, cool, and collected. She's very rational, very smart. And, and I said to her, is there anything you'd like to do? You know, what, 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 
tell me about things you'd like to do. Out of her lips came, I want to go parachuting. <laughs> well, skydiving, parachuting, same thing. <clears throat> and I looked at this woman, and I thought, who is this? And she went on to tell me how exciting it would be and how wonderful it would be. And in my mind, I'm thinking, why would you leave a good airplane and trust something that you didn't do anything with? Somebody else packed this chute, and you're trusting in that. And, and as time went on, she, she asked me, what would you like to do? And I said, I'd like to scuba dive. She, was, she said, I'd never do that. Uh, that, that, that. That holds no interest to me at all. And as, as time went on, we talked a little bit about this, and I said, listen, you know, what I'm going to do, because we all think we're going to do the best thing, what I'm going to do is, is much safer than what you're going to do. And she was like, no, it's not. I said, you jump out of the airplane, you pull that little handle, trusting that something's going to come out. What if it doesn't come out? And I said to her, I get down there, I can't breathe, I can still float. So you can't fly, I can float, mine is safer. <laughs> Discussion over. But as, as yeah, sharks. <laughs> as, as I was thinking about that, the Lord brought that to, to mind because he was giving me a reference point and a comparison that many times not many times, sometimes people deal with their relationship with God like a parachute. And, and what he revealed to me is you choose to put yourself in a very challenging situation. By your choice, you jump out of the plane. You start falling and you pull the ripcord expecting the parachute to come out so that what? Yeah, safety. So you don't hit the ground and die, right? You want a safe landing on solid ground. And sometimes we deal with God that way, where we take a step out of into nothing, into something challenging, into something that's very terrifying, and all of a sudden we pull a prayer to God, and we're expecting to land safely. And yet, when, when I, I did and I do scuba dive, when I realized what that was about, it was going into a very hostile environment that would not sustain life for me into the water, and yet I, was, I had everything I needed with me, a tank and an air hose, and that air hose provided what I needed the whole time I was there. And God wants us to to recognize that he is always there. We carry him with us all the time. He is there to supply what we need to be able to exist in a very hostile environment, which is this, this world. This world is filled with sin. And the only way we're going to be able to thrive, not just survive, but thrive, is to be able to have the life of God just filling us every time, every time, everywhere, in everything. And, and so this is what we've been learning about. We've been learning about abiding, where we are so connected to God, where there's not a separation. We're looking to God. We're trusting in God. We're relying on God 
for everything because he's the only one that's always going to be with us. He's always there. He always cares. He always wants to be involved. And, and so in learning about this abiding where we make him the preeminent one in our life, the most valuable, the most influential, and the most, most uh, important, nothing else and no one else can do what God does. And in realizing that when we live this life of abiding, God begins to produce life, fruit in our lives that begin to impact all the other people that we come in contact with, whether we know it or not. And, and this is what God, is, his plan has always been, that as we stay connected continuously, uh, looking to and relying on, trusting in and following after God, Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Abide in me and I in you, for the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in me. Neither can you unless you abide in me. And so we've been learning about this abiding, and we began to look at, at uh, two kings because Israel had said to God, we want a king just like they do. All these other nations have kings. We want a king like they have a king, and they already had a king, and who was it? Yeah, it was the Lord. And they said, we want one like them because they thought it was better. Not everything we think is better is better. It's just different. And so God said, all right, I'll give you a king. And he gave them a king, and, and his name was Saul. But we found out in studying Saul's life, Saul was started out well, but he didn't end well. He, he relied on God to a point, and then he began to become independent, do what he wanted, because it was what he saw was best, or what he saw was right, or what he saw was good. And the Bible tells us there's a way that seems right unto man whose end is the way of death. And so Saul disregarded what God said, became deceived, and thought he had done what God had said. And God finally said, you know what? This is it. I, I am not going to continue with you as king. I've got a man after my own heart that I'm going to place as king. Because when Saul was confronted about his sin, about diverting from God and going a different direction, and when we get off the path from God, one of the definitions of sin is missing the mark of God. God keeps us on a path, and that path is the path of life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And when we get off that path, we immediately take steps into sin. And what does the Bible, anybody know what the Bible says the wages of sin or the payoff of sin is? Death. It's death. And so we begin to start walking in this area that death begins to get greater and greater grips on us and more and more impact in our lives. And, and so when that happens, we have the opportunity to turn back, but Saul didn't. Saul justified and rationalized uh, about why he did. He blamed everybody else. Same thing that happened in the garden when Adam blamed Eve and then blamed God, but wouldn't take responsibility himself, wouldn't own it, wouldn't, wouldn't own the fact that he had sinned and repent, turn back to God. And Saul didn't do it either. He said, you know what, Samuel, come with me so that the people will, will see us together and think we're okay. I want to look good in the eyes of people. And so the Lord said to him, the end of your reign is coming. But it didn't come immediately. And Samuel the prophet went and anointed a young boy, eight between uh, 10 and 16 years old, and anointed him as king in front of his family. And so he was set up as 
the stamp of God was on him that he was going to become the next king, but he didn't immediately. And so we, we looked at this and, and found out that he went through a lot of things. Saul got very jealous of him when he killed Goliath, and Saul hunted him down and tried to, to take his life numerous times. But David, David kept inquiring of the Lord. The Lord kept directing him and showing him what he needed to do. And he was obedient, and he, he was able to be saved from these situations. And finally, the, the tribe of Judah, his tribe, anointed him as king. And then eventually, all of Israel came and anointed him as king when he was in Hebron. And that's where we left it last week, and we're going to look at David's life, because David, David did what God wanted. But there's only one that lived in this earth that did everything that God wanted all the time, and that was Jesus. All of us are human beings. We're frail. We're flawed. We have failures. We sang it this morning. And what happens? What happens when we, we get tripped up, when we fall down, when we choose to head off into sin? Well, we're going to see because David is known as a man after God's own heart. That's what God said. I have someone that is, is a man after my own heart. And in Acts chapter 13, that's how David is referred and yet David wasn't perfect. None of us can be perfect. But we can still be people just like David that have a heart after God because we're choosing to abide. And today we're going to look at this and see how this happens, even in the most difficult and sinful situations. God can redeem us. But before we do, I just want to pray. So if you'd bow your heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for your presence here. Thank you for your presence with those that are online. Lord, you are everywhere, and we thank you for your word that goes forth today. Father, you watch over your word to perform it. It is truth, and it sets us free as we apply it to our lives. It is a light unto our path and a light unto our feet. And Father, we thank you for the, the revelation that comes as Holy Spirit uh, reveals to us the truth of your word, that Father, we can apply it and experience transformation going from glory to glory. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Father, for the good work that you've begun. Today, work in our lives. Show us your truth. Set us free. Help us to become all that you have for us to become so that we can do all that you have for us to do. And, and we'll be very careful to give you all the praise and the glory and the honor. In Jesus' name, and everyone said. So, so David was, was anointed as king in Hebron. And we looked at this last week, and then he moved to Jerusalem. When he moved to Jerusalem, the Philistines found out that, that David had moved there, and they were seeking to kill him. And uh, he battled the Philistines. He inquired of the Lord, battled the Philistines, beat them. There was another battle. He inquired of the Lord. They beat them because God gave him the guidance, and he was obedient. And so things settled down. He's had all these victories. And we pick this up in chapter 6 of 2 Samuel, where David has a desire. All of a sudden, he's in Jerusalem. He wants to do something. And this is what it says. David again brought together all the able men of Israel, 30,000. And he and all his men went to Balak in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. There they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abed, 
Abinadab, which was on a hill. Yuza and Aho, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart. So they go out. David decides, you know what? The ark was stolen by the Philistines. I need to go get the ark. We've just beaten them. I'm going to go get the ark. I want to bring it back to Jerusalem. It should be with us. Now, how many of you think that's a good idea? Some of you aren't going to answer because you're afraid to be wrong. But it's, it, it seems like a good idea. And it was just David's idea. I'm going to go get the ark. I'm going to bring it back because it belongs with us, which is true. But one thing we don't see him doing that he did all the way through up to this point, he would inquire of the Lord. What do you want me to do? How do you want me to do it? And yet he just goes and he goes and he does it spectacularly. 30,000 young men, the, the strongest warriors they had. And there was a reason behind this because when the ark was captured, 30,000 men of Israel died when the ark was taken away. So he thought, you know what? This is a good idea. I'm going to take 30,000 men and we're going to escort it back. And, and he said, now we're going to put it on a, a new cart because, you know, we all think new is better, right? We, we have been programmed into this because we have experienced in our lives uh, that companies plan obsolescence. Most of our electronic equipment, there is a date where they are going to stop producing it and then they're going to stop producing the things that are needed with it. So eventually we are forced into buying the, somewhere along the line the next generation of something. And, and so... They, David says, you know, I'm going to put it on a new cart. One of the reasons could be because when the Philistines took the ark, they put it on a new cart and they transported it. But God had already told Israel how the ark was to be transported. And David either didn't know or just decided, look, that worked for them. Let's do what they're doing. Now, I want you to know what works for them may not specifically work for you. Principles work, but the specifics about it may not work for you. And so we need to be willing to be guided by God, not following what everybody else is doing. And yet they did that. And when the cart coming off the hill, uh, the oxen pulling it stumbled a little bit, the cart kind of jerked, and the ark started to move. And Yuza put out his hand to steady the ark and immediately died. David got really upset. Then he got really fearful, and he said, you know what, I'm not taking it any farther. We're going to put it at this man's house. And found out that where they had left the ark, that man and his whole household began to become so blessed, abundantly blessed. And David, David must have figured, well, now it's safe. But David had learned. David had learned how to transport the ark. And we pick this up in verse 6. No, 13. It says, When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. So he initially took the ark on a cart, but later found out that what God had told Israel was the only way the ark will ever be transported is it's to be carried on the shoulders of the priests with golden poles that go through the four rings on the corners of the ark. 
So somehow he got this and did it the right way. But he had assumed, maybe because of all the victories he had, he just assumed he could do what he wanted to do. You know what? We can't assume. We need to seek God. We need to know. And as a matter of fact, the Bible tells, or I'm sorry, the word for you today tells us of a scripture that says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. And this was in the word for you today on Thursday where it talks about how uh, we're to handle temptation. And the temptation comes many times after victories, after breakthroughs, that we're real susceptible to being tripped up by temptation, falling into sin because we're not as attentive to God. And this is what happened to David. He all of a sudden thought he was going to do something and he didn't do it the way God wanted. And sin, the sin of not being obedient and the reach out of Uzzah touching the ark of God. No one was to touch the ark of God. And he died. Then David came back and did it the right way. He had, he had found out how he was supposed to do it. And they carried the ark Six steps the priests did, and then they made sacrifices. They played instruments. They celebrated and praised God. And David, David took on an ephod. It was a, a garment of a priest that was sleeveless. And it says he danced before the Lord with all his might. He was, he was celebrating, praising, and worshiping God. And as they came close to Jerusalem, where he was bringing it back to, his wife looked out and saw him, and she despised her husband in her heart. She was upset about what he was doing. She was embarrassed. You know, sometimes we wonder in, in service, you know, should I lift my hands? Should I, should I sing loudly? Because uh, I, I don't want people looking at me. I don't want to be embarrassed. Or out in the community, we're, we're, we're maybe hesitant to let people know where we stand with God, that God's more important to us than anyone else. The Lord is our God. And he is the... He has the preeminence in our lives. And David responded to his wife and said, you know what? And I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I am going to dance even harder before the Lord. And whether I look foolish, ridiculous, or not, it doesn't matter. I'm going to humble myself because God is more important. You know, that's the heart we have to have, and that's the heart that David had. He learned. He learned from his mistakes. And he didn't hold it against God. He, he determined that God was more important than anyone or anything else. And so we find that, that you know, David has these, these situations go on, and, and he's done wrong, but he kind of recovers and then there's another prophet that God raises up. And in chapter 7, this prophet is told by God, woken up by God, told by God some things to tell King David. And his name is Nathan. And it says, uh, this is what Nathan, Nathan said in 2 Samuel 7, verse 8 and 9. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. So Nathan comes to David, 
and, and reminds him of what God has done. You know, we need to remember whatever victory, whatever blessing, whatever breakthrough, whatever benefit we have, at the foundation of it all, the Bible says every good and perfect gift comes from our Father above. We need to be thankful to God. That's why we need to be thanking God, praising God, worshiping God, not just on Sundays, every day, throughout the day, because God is worthy of that. God has done so much for us, and He's not stopping. He continues to do many things that we are never aware of. And, and so he's, He says, this is what I've done. I've been with you wherever you've gone. I've cut off your enemies. But now, I'm going to make your name great. That's a wonderful thing, but it's a challenging thing. You know, we're living in a time where everybody wants to be known. Everybody wants to be famous. I say that, and that's not true, because... When we include everybody, it's not true. But so many people are doing so many bizarre and crazy things, some amazing things, but they are online and they want everybody to like them. They want more followers than anybody else. Listen, if you get a follower today, they may drop you tomorrow. Happened with Jesus. The people that welcomed him in, Hosanna, 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 when he came in on the Palm Sunday Road, Days later, we're probably in the crowd, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. You can't count on everybody, but you can count on God. He always will be there for you. He always wants the best for us. And so he says, David, I'm going to make your name great. That is the, the prayer and the desire for so many people in our time. They just want to be great. They want to be famous. They want to be known. And we find out in chapter 8, verse 13, that that actually, it happened. God did exactly that. But before we get there, let's go to verse 22 and 18 and, and 26. When, when God told him that through the prophet Nathan, it was a moment of time where he just stopped. And it says, then David went in and, and and sat before the Lord and prayed. And he said, who am I, O sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? Have you ever thought about that? Who, is, who are we that God would notice us and live in us and bless us the way he has? But it's because of him, not because of us. It's because of him who loves us no matter what. Then in verse 22, he goes on to say, How great are you, O sovereign Lord? There is no one like you. We have never even heard of another God like you. You know, there's no one like God. There's no one that's done for each one of us what God has done for us, and no one ever will. And so that's why we need to be abiding. We need to be looking to God. We need to be clinging to God. We need to be yielding to God and letting God have his way in our lives. And then in verse 26, he says this, and may your name be honored forever so that everyone will say the Lord of heaven's armies is God over Israel. And may the house of your servant David continue before you forever. He's saying, you're God, and I'm your servant. You're God. And I have the privilege of being your servant. 
You know, there's no greater title than servant of all. Jesus said the greatest in the kingdom of God is servant of all. The way up in the kingdom is the way down. And Jesus showed us that. He modeled that. And yet, many times when we become known or renowned in, in chapter 8, verse 13, it happens. And we see what the word says, that uh, David became what? Famous. Famous. After he had returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Do you remember what happened when David struck down Goliath? Yeah, he died. He died. He fell down and died. And the women started to sing about Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And yet, they just embellished it. Saul got very upset about it. And, and David had only killed one. Now he has killed 18,000. What do you think they're singing now? You know, the, the song gets bigger and bigger. The tale goes on. And it's real easy to begin to look at ourselves when people are singing about us or saying, you know, wow, look what you've done. You're amazing. Unless we have the humility to say, you know what? It wasn't me. It was God. I was allowed the privilege of serving God in this capacity. Because if we don't take that stance, pretty soon we're going to start thinking how great we are. Instead of singing, how great thou art, we're going to sing, how great I am. And that pride begins to rise up. And, and the Bible tells us, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. We get tripped up. And David definitely got tripped up. But he continued from chapter 8 on to chapter 11. He continues to have victories, victories and victories and victories after against huge foes. And we come to chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, and uh, this is a, a pretty well-known story in the Bible of what happened, but it reveals to us how if we don't maintain that humility and that heart of abiding and recognizing it's God, God has done great things, we've been privileged to be a part of it, but He's the one. And it says that in the springtime, when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. And they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbath. But God remained in Jerusalem. Or, but David remained in Jerusalem. So we see right here, David's making choices that were not what he was supposed to do. It says when kings go out to war, the time when kings go out to war, what did David do? He sent Joab. He just decided, you know what, Joab, I'm not going this time. I'm, I'm going to send you. I'm going to send my mighty men. I'm going to send all the troops. But you go out. I'm going to stay back here. Now, David is ignoring what he was told to do. As a king, he was told to lead Israel. As a king, he was, it was known that he would go out with the troops. And he, he ignores what his position that God placed him in was a part of disobedience, sin, and it begins to unravel 
and begins to pile up. How many of you know when we get into one sin, it's real easy to get into another sin? And so he's there in Jerusalem. He stays there. That's the first choice that he made that was wrong. One evening, David got up from his bed, walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David said, sent someone to find her. Go ahead. Find out about her. And the man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. And David sent a messenger to go get her. So he's walking on the roof. That's okay. He has the right to do that. And all of a sudden, he sees a woman bathing. But he doesn't just look. He begins to stare. Because if it's the evening and you're on the roof and you see somebody bathing, you're not going to know how beautiful or ugly they are. But he stares enough to find out she's beautiful. Entering into more temptation. Then he says, who is that? The guy right there says, this is so-and-so's daughter, the wife of Uriah. Should have stopped there. Should have stopped when he was on the rooftop not looking and continuing to look to see how beautiful this woman was. Now he wants to find out. He finds out he's, she's the wife of someone. Should have stopped there. And then he sends for her. Should not have done that either. See, it's just piling up quicker and quicker and bigger and bigger. And, and it goes on to say, that she came, sent the messenger and she came to him. He ended up sleeping with her, got her pregnant, found out that she was pregnant, and then he begins to make all sorts of decisions to try and hide his sin, to try and make sure nobody knows what he's done, just like we all do. When we do something wrong, we don't want everybody to know. And if we can get out of it without too much damage, we're going to try and take the easy way out many times. And David did that. This is the one that followed God. This is the one that has a heart after God. And yet he finds out that, that Uriah's wife is pregnant with his child, and he begins to do some other things. He calls for Uriah. Where's Uriah? He's at the battle because he's in the army. Uriah comes to David, King David, and David says, how's the battle going? He said, it's going well, we're doing well. And uh, he said, good, thanks for the report. Go down and, and take a night with your, your wife. And he's trying to cover up his sin. But Uriah does not go down to his home, does not go to be with his wife. He goes to sleep with the servants that are at the doorway available to the king. The next morning, the king finds out, King David finds out that Uriah didn't go home to be with his wife. He calls him in again. He says, why didn't you go to be with your wife? He said, if, if all my brothers in the army are in the fields of battle, I am not going to have the comfort of my own house. And so David takes him in and he, he feeds him and he gets him drunk. And he says to him, go down to be with your wife and we'll send you back to the front tomorrow. Uriah, being a, an honorable man, does not go to his home. He again sleeps with the servants by the door available to the king. David finds out again Uriah hasn't done it. He calls Uriah in, and he says, 
I need you to take a letter from me to Joab, the commander out in the field. Uriah didn't know what was on the letter, but King David had written to Joab, put Uriah, when he gets back, put Uriah in the most fierce battle that we have going on, the most treacherous, the most dangerous. Put him right there in the front. And when the battle is the worst, pull everybody back. Joab does what King David says. They put Uriah in the fiercest battle. They pull the rest of the troops away from him. And Uriah dies and a few other Israelites die. Word gets back to Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, and she, she mourns. And David sends for her after she's done with mourning and makes him makes her his wife. And we pick this up in, in verse 20, 26 and 27, where it says, Bathsheba heard that her husband Uriah had died, and so she mourned for him. After her time of sadness, David sent servants to bring her to his house. She became David's wife and gave birth to a son, his son. But the Lord did not like what David had done. Yeah. Sure he didn't. David had compounded, continued to move this sin along to be bigger and bigger. He had not gone out to war. He could have repented right there. He had seen a woman. He could have repented right there. He ended up sleeping with her and tries to hide that and has a man killed and others killed. And then decides, you know what? I'm just going to take her as my wife. All of this happens. This is the man after God's own heart, but he's not perfect. But he's very different than Saul. When Saul was confronted with his sin, he blamed the people and other things. He said, I've done what God told me, not David. David handled it in a very, very, very different way. And this is what makes him a man after God's own heart. And we're going to go to Psalm 51 because this is the psalm that David wrote when Nathan confronted him. Nathan confronts David and he tells him a story about some, some people, two people, a rich man and a poor man, and how the rich man took the poor man's only lamb when he had many. And David says, I am that man. I have, I have sinned. And so when he, he owns his sin, this is the psalm he wrote. He says, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, Blot out my what? Whose transgressions? Mine. He owned it. When, when, we, when we detour off, we move away from what God has for us, we need to own it. We can't, we can't blame somebody else. You know, Adam blamed Eve. It's this woman you gave me. Then he blamed God. We want to blame other people, but until we take responsibility, until we take ownership, I sinned. We can't repent and turn out of it. We have to have truth in it. And he said, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from what? My sin. My sin. See, until we own it, we can't be free of it. Because we're operating in deception. 
For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is always before me. I acknowledge it. Lord, I've sinned. The Bible says in, in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin to God, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God knew. God knew we're going to get saved, but there are still going to be temptations and we're still going to get tripped up and fall in sin. The Bible says, though a righteous man falls seven times, he arises. We get tripped up by temptation. We get, get tripped up by sin, but we don't have to stay there. We don't have to stay stuck, but we do have to come clean. We have to say to God, God, I've sinned. I confess my sin to you. And I am turning to you and trusting in you to cleanse me. And that's what David's doing. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. David's not candy-coating it. He's not justifying or rationalizing. He's owning it so that he can get free of it. He's turning to God and, and being honest with God. In verse 6, it goes on to say, you want me completely loyal, so put true wisdom inside of me. God does. God wants us loyal. God wants us faithful. When we stand before the Lord, the thing we want to hear is, well done, good and faithful servant. Those two attributes, a servant and faithful. And so he, he indicates that God will help him. You know, when we confess our sin, it is a, an act of humility. The Bible says in our weakness, his strength is made perfect. God gives grace to the humble. The only way we get through this is we humble ourselves before God. The Bible says in James, submit yourself to God and then you and I can resist the enemy and he'll flee. It's the only way we get free. We submit. We own what we've done. We repent of what we've done, and we rejoin God in the pursuit of what God has for us to do. And then he says, so put true wisdom deep inside me. Where is truth found? I know everybody thinks they have it, but the Bible tells us God's word is true. Truth sets people what? Free and keeps them free. And, and the psalmist said, I hide your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And his word is truth. When we begin to put the word of God in us, all of a sudden we have a reference point that Holy Spirit can remind us when we're being tempted. Because where's Holy Spirit when we're being tempted? Did he leave? No, he's right there with us. He is an ever-present help in time of need. And so in our temptation, that's the moment, the moment of choice. There is an old show that I used to watch growing up. A lot of you may not have ever seen it, but it was called the Flip Wilson Show. And, and Flip Wilson had a saying that he said at least every show and multiple times a show, the devil made me do it. And we want, we want to blame the devil, and he is not the blame. The devil tempts, okay? He tempts everybody. He tempted Jesus. But Jesus was, the Bible says, tempted in all things, yet without sin. And why was he without sin? Because he didn't give in to it. Remember what he said? 
I always do those things that please my Father? In that temptation, he was being pulled towards something. But in his weakness, being pulled towards that, he turned to God to trust in him and then followed after God. When we sin, it's our choice. We can't blame anyone else. And the moment we do, we begin to lie. We begin to operate in deception. And where there's deception, there's loss. And so in that moment, we need to own it. I'm being tempted. You know what? It doesn't surprise God you're being tempted. And it doesn't sadden God. He knows you're going to be tempted. But in that temptation, in that weakness, in that being pulled away, we cry out to God, God, I need your help in this. Now, he'll give you and me what we need to make the right choice, but he won't make it for us. That's ultimately left up to us to make that choice. And so he's telling God, put true wisdom deep inside me. Remove my sin and make me pure. When something's pure, it means that it's homogeneous. Everything in it is the same. It's not divided. And many times we're, we move into sin because we're divided. We want this, we want God, we want this, we want God. And eventually we give in to something. And so he says, make me pure, wash me until I am whiter than what? Yes, even God deals with snow. But we come into this portion of Psalm 51 that reveals really where David's heart is and why he had a heart after God. And, and when we get to uh, the next portion in verse, is it 13? Yes, 10 through 13. David says this, of all the things, he says, create in me a clean or pure heart and renew a steadfast, a faithful spirit in me. This is what he's asking for. Of all the things he could ask for, he's asking for this. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, I don't know. You know, I, I don't know what, what other things that could have shot up there, but it's easy to think, don't take the kingdom from me. Don't take my fame and popularity from me. Don't take the wealth of the kingdom from me. Don't take my... And the list goes on without end. But here we see David's heart after God. David's, David's desire to have God before and above anyone else. He says, don't take your presence from me. Take me from your presence. Don't take your spirit from me. David was a man that abided. David made bad choices. He sinned. But David recovered because when he had turned from God, the thing he wanted more than anything else was to turn back and hold on to God and have God hold on to him and abide and see God do what he, he, only he can do. And then verse 12, it says, Restore to me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with your generous spirit. You know, when we move into sin, two of the first things to go. God doesn't go. God never leaves us. But some of the characteristics that we have in our lives because of God are blocked. The joy and the peace. 
we lose our joy and we lose our peace when we're operating in sin because we know we're in sin. And it robs us of that fruit. And that joy, the Bible says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. We, we become weak and frail and, and, and just worn out because of the sin in our lives. And the peace? See, the joy is our strength and the peace is our security. We have this security, this, this just confident security when we're in right standing with God. But when we're in sin, we're unsure because it robs us of that. And then he says this, then, after the restoration, I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will be converted to me. I'll teach transgressors your way. Why? Because all of us can do that. When we transgress God, when we go against what God says and we get restored, we know what it's like for somebody else to be going through that. You know, I know what it's like to be an alcoholic. I know what it's like to be addicted to pornography. And when somebody is dealing with that, I can pray for them. I can say to them, listen, you know, I used to have the same battle. I used to fall and get tripped up by the same thing, robbed by the same tactic of the enemy. But I want you to know God's there. And God cares, and God wants to restore you if you will repent, turn away from this, and trust in Him. But I also can help them understand this isn't a self-help thing. This isn't a, a work that's done in isolation. None of us can do this alone. And when I was coming out of those two addictions, I had people in my life that loved me, that prayed for me, that were very direct with me and held me accountable and were available to me to, to, uh, to call when I was struggling. I'm telling you right now, if you're here or you're online, there is a, a ministry here that has that and specifically for that, and that's Journey of Recovery. Man, they're there. They're doing life with each other. They're holding each other accountable. They're holding each other up. They are there for each other. But it shouldn't just be journey of recovery. It's a great place to plug in and be a part of, but we should take that beyond and be there for each other wherever they are, whatever's going on. And then he says, and sinners will be converted to you. Why? One of the things that many people are very afraid of is, well, if I give my life to the Lord, I, I don't want to screw up. We all do. We all do. But the key to it is, no matter how many times we fall down, because we love God and we reach out to God, God lifts us up. The Bible says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and in due season he'll lift you up. When we are seen by people who see the work of God going on in our life, the restoration of God, they're going to want what you have. And that's why we're still here. We're here to be a witness. We're here to be ambassadors. We're here to show people that God loves broken people. God loves people that fall, people that fail, people that are flawed. And God will never, ever, ever give up on any one of us. But we have to choose. God will never give up on us, but many times we give up on God. We don't choose to reach out to God. We will choose to reach out to something else.
and everything else other than God will at some point, sometime, some way fail us. But God will never fail you. Amen? Like every head bowed, every eye closed. God loves you. Whether you know it or not, whether you love him or not, it doesn't matter. God loves you. He's always loved you. And yet God is limited in what he can do in your life and my life to what will allow him. And for God to really go to work in our lives, we have to invite him to take over our lives. We give him our lives because we know that he'll do a better job of leading our lives, of governing our lives, of guiding our lives and guarding our lives than we can. And so if you're here, if you're online and you've never trusted in Christ, you've never turned to him and entrusted him with your life and, and not just talking about on Sunday mornings, this is all the time. Letting him have control. And that's a big, hairy, fearful thing because we think we need to be in control. But when we're in control, we get the things that we've gotten. But when we give God control, he's able to do exceeding abundantly above all we can ask or think according to the power, the power of his spirit and his word that lives in us because we've given ourselves to him. So if you've never given your life to the Lord, given yourself to him, today I'm going to invite you to pray with me. And I'm going to invite everybody. But let's pray this prayer together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your son Jesus who came into the earth, lived a sinless life, died on the cross to pay the price for my sins and was raised glorious and victorious and is seated in heaven. Today, Lord Jesus, I ask you to forgive me. I have sinned. I repent. I turn to you. And I turn my life over to you. I trust in you to be my Savior and Lord. From this day forward, I am yours. You are mine. Thank you for saving me Guide me, govern me, guard me. Thank you, Jesus, in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer today for the first time, let somebody know, because now you got a new family, and your family is excited about your new life, and we want to celebrate that. If you online prayed, let us know. Go to our website, reslifeny.org. Scroll down to where the prayer requests are. Let us know that you prayed. If you want us to pray for you by name, give us your name. If you want to be contacted, give us contact information. God is so good. God has great things ahead. The best is yet to come. Amen? Amen. Would you stand?